0: From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee and this
2: is the Autosport Podcast. Welcome to the first of our three podcasts this weekend as Formula One is back down under after a two-year break and the cars were back on track today for free practice. Carlos Sainz topping FP1 by a handy half-second ahead of teammate Charles Leclerc and the two Red Bulls of Perez and Verstappen. This morning we saw teams doing more testing, running aero rakes like Red Bull, assessing some new wing end plates as teams continue to learn about these new cars. Sebastian Vettel missing out on the last ten minutes of FP1 as his Aston Martin engine was wafting smoke across the Albert Park track at the exit of Turn 10. Uh, Vettel would later be investigated for how he got back to the pits. We'll get on to that in a second with Jonathan Noble. In FP2, Alonso would top the timesheets halfway through the session. Uh, we'll work out how genuine that Alpine pace is with John in a second. Uh, the session was topped by Charles Leclerc, followed by Verstappen 2.5 tenths down, but not as it seems. A bit scruffy for Verstappen uh, today on his quick runs. Uh, in Third, we had Sainz and Alonso in fourth. The Red Bulls, Pérez in fifth and Alpines, Ocon in sixth. The second off the pace, McLaren's finishing both in the top ten. Good for Ricardo's home race, eighth and tenth. But we'll see uh, what teams like Haas do when they start to uh, get through the weekend. We get a clearer steer on how the teams are shaping up. Joined on the podcast today by Jonathan Noble. Back on the Friday pods, actually. John, it's always a bit difficult on a Friday now when you are at a circuit because of the... Now, all of the crazy press sessions which have been moved from Thursdays and the interviews into Fridays now, so it's hard to get some time with you. But you uh, are back on today. I'm looking out my window here in deepest, darkest Dorset. It's uh, wet and windy today where you are in the south of England. Is it uh, the same, not quite the sunshine of Australia?
1: Uh, it's not so wet and not so windy today, um, but it is a bit bit cold, I must say. Yeah, of 23-race calendar. I mean, it's quite a, quite a drain for somebody to do to all of them. So it's about being kind of sensible so I just felt that 24 hours on a plane to Australia for three days to then fly home for 24 hours after three weeks away for the tests and um, the first two races. More sensible to to um, miss this one. And I think Luke and, Luke and Alex who missed Saudi Arabia for the same reason, just spacing out. Have gone instead. So they're they're out there in the sunshine <laughs> and I'm here in the cold. Hey, what do you make of
2: the remodeled Albert Park track? A chicane in sector two has been removed. Turn three is four meters wider. They all seem to be struggling with turn turn three today. Uh you've been there before. What do you make of this new look track?
1: The jury'll only give its verdict on Sunday. It's obviously been designed for racing, you know, better racing, better overtaking. Um and it's that's a really hard thing to judge before you actually see that the car's actually racing on track um i think more intriguing and kind of more that's a matter that's the focus of quite a lot of debate at the moment is the use of drs and its role in formula one um there's four drs zones there this weekend and we saw in saudi arabia that you know how powerful drs can be with these cars and i think we, we've now m- maybe at the point where i think f1 needs some discussions about w- what is drs there for is it when it originally came around and I, I quite agreed with it it was it was there to make an overtaking pass that was impossible to make it possible but not guaranteed so it would get you into the place where if you judge the move perfectly you can make the move get an overtaking done and we go away so races don't turn into processions but judging by Saudi Arabia and this is what triggered that kind of the bizarre situation of Charles Leclerc and Max Verstappen not wanting to be the, the first car across the DRS detection zone at that final corner was it guaranteed a pass basically meant if you were leading coming out of the final corner you wouldn't be leading heading into turn one and i don't think that's what drs should be it shouldn't be about making a pass automatic and easy it should only ever be about making a pass possible um so i think that's something we need to see on sunday and i think it's a, a debate that formula One needs to have and i think it relies then on the fia being able to better judge and move the drs zones you know over a race weekend because they didn't move in Saudi, and I think that could have made a better situation on Sunday. And I think if we see a race here on Sunday where Christian Horner said today, it could be like MotoGP where we get four or five overtaking repasses every lap. If it turns into that, you know, it may be spectacular for the first two or three laps, but after a while, doesn't, an overtaking pass becomes irrelevant because there's, they're swapping so much. So I think it's, it'd be an interesting race to speak about on Sunday night about overtaking, passing and DRS.
2: Yeah, on the Sunday pod a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to Alex and Jess about the the feedback and the criticism about DRS and you know we see it on social media and you know we talk about it and our fans say look oh it's fake and and what have you and i said look just w- one way to to shut those people up just take it away uh, and of course uh, and Jess you know fell off her seat because you're like you cannot take DRS out of Albert Park but i was being obviously a little bit flippant and you know saying it to get a reaction but is that a possibility do you think that they could Take it away completely at some races this year to see how do these cars behave without it? Or do you think it's going to be more of a sort of typical, you know, the way Formula 1 teams work, which is it's iterative. They always get a little bit better. I think they just make the zones shorter and shorter and shorter or move the detection lines. Or, you know, but what can they do
1: to sort this out? The perfect Formula 1 wouldn't need DRS. That it's it's a sticking plaster over a problem that how difficult it is for cars to pass. And I think a Formula 1 with no overtaking that's completely processional like we used to have in the old days, you know, Albert Park was like Barcelona where whoever led into the first corner basically was pretty much guaranteed to win the race with little tyre strategy variation, um, a standard one stop and zero overtaking. So that's not a good Formula 1 and not a Formula 1 we want to watch. We want to see overtaking and passing and cars able to defend. So DRS you know, should allow that possibility for overtaking the right circumstances. So I think it's an issue of how effective DRS is. Uh, as I said, I don't think DRS should make a, a passing move automatic because all, all you're then doing is on Sunday, if passing is really, really easy for a car to get past a slower car ahead, then the cars will just end up in the order of which, you know, the quickest car will be first, second quickest car will be second and third quickest car will be third. And that makes it boring. What what makes a good motor race is when a slower car in front driven by a driver who's driving very, very well, can defend against a quicker car and blocking him and um, driving absolutely in that car behind has to do something brilliant to get past. You know, it's gotta be earned. Overtakes should be earned. Overtakes should be something that, you know, fans mm. look at and appreciate and think, Wow, that was amazing. Not something that's a flick of a button and um, handed to them on a plate. Mm. Let's talk about pace
2: once again, Ferraris are topping the timesheets. How real is that Ferrari pace? They look good. I mean, they In the long run pace, they were bouncing around all over the place again, and that looked like uh, more of an issue than we'd seen up until that point. Perhaps they were doing some heavier runs or just changing how close those cars are running to the ground, which starts to the so-called porpoising or bouncing uh, kicked in. Uh, not the worst we've seen, but but pretty bad for the Ferraris, but certainly on the quality pace, it was looking looking
1: pretty good. Is that pace real? Do you think? What's your assessment? Yeah, I think the Ferrari pace is real. I don't think we haven't seen the real pace of the Red Bull yet. Why is that? Um, but traffic. I think Max Verstappen, you know, made a mistake on one lap where he ran wide at the penultimate corner. I think he had traffic on his quickest lap as well. Um, so Charles the clerk said tonight that you know we've not seen the true potential of the Red Bull yet. So I think. We've again got a weekend where it's very, very, very close between Ferrari and Red Bull, little separating them. And it'll come down to details again, like the the details of Bahrain that the Ferrari's better able to look after its tyres. The details in Saudi that Red Bull opted for the lower downforce setting, as they appear to have done this weekend, um, to put themselves in a position to overtake on the straights. So I don't think there's very much in it. And in terms of porpoising, it was quite bad today, but I think that may be a, a track characteristic that... The difficulty for teams is is, is finding this balance between getting the car into the right setup window where the car's performing, but then that can sometimes cross over with the point at which the car porpoises. So I think in the run to turn nine today, um, we saw Charles Leclerc bouncing around. He said it was setup, he said it wasn't nothing. It was nothing to do with heavy fuel loads or um, the kind of condition of the car. It's just where they are operating the car to get maximum performance. So it's something they're going to have to live with. And I think it's the same at Mercedes. George Russell said today it was the worst. On the run to turn nine today, he said it's the worst porpoising he's experienced. And I think it's just the way... I think we're going to get this all season. There will be track characteristics where the, the teams are going to have to accept that if they want to be quick, then there's going to be some porpoising. The drivers are going to have to be uncomfortable. And as Charles Leclerc quite rightly said tonight, I'm, I'm not here to drive a car that's comfortable. I'm here to drive a car that's quick.
2: <laughs> Talking about... Other things that he said this week, Adam Cooper wrote a piece about him not liking the Leclerc 2.0 uh, label. I haven't seen that, by the way, but he maybe it's the Italian press or something. He clearly has, and he was pretty irked by it. Bottas never liked Bottas 2.0 and 3.0 and and etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Drivers never do like to... Have this label that all of a sudden, uh, you know, new season or overnight, they've suddenly become yeah, magically more talented. Have you seen that Leclerc two point this kind of reinvigorated thing? Because I haven't seen that, but he seemed pretty annoyed by reports that he'd seen this week.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think it was a comment that emerged in Italy from I think Mark Cheney, who works with Ferrari, um, kind of I think does sim work and ambassadorial work and helps him out. Just just suggested that Charles has stepped up this year, but I think. The only reason we're seeing Charles fighting at the front is because the car's much quicker. Um, I think you often see this in in Formula One that you know, a narrative will emerge where a, a car makes the progress from the back of the grid or the midfield to the front, the driver's delivering, you know, exactly the same performances, delivering to the same level, but suddenly rather than fighting for fifth and sixth, he's fighting for first and second. So the perception from the outside is he's doing a better job, but actually he's just driving a better car. Um, so I think that's what we're that's what we're seeing. I mean, it's, a, it's an easy narrative to take, and of course, you know, it's natural if you're fighting for first and second. There's much more focus, more attention on the job you're doing. Um, mistakes are punished much more critically than they are if you're fighting for fifth and sixth. You you know you make a mistake when you're battling in the midfield, perhaps no one notices it. Make a mistake when you're leading a race, and it costs you the victory in the world championship then, you know, it's tremendously under the spotlight. So I think Charles has driven consistently, brilliantly th- throughout his entire career. I mean, he's someone who's learned from his mistakes. He's highly critical of himself. Um, perhaps he's more critical of himself than other people have ever been of him. Um, he's got himself into a great position at Ferrari. Um I'm sure he's a better driver this year than he was last year. And I'm sure last year was a better driver than he was the year before. It's just constant improvement for a youngster who's who's pushing up, pushing onwards. But, you know, I I think I agree with Charles. I don't think he's a (laughs) drastically, radically different driver to how he was before. It's just natural progression.
2: Talking of drivers who have driven very well throughout their career, we're in Australia, Oscar Piastri is sitting out 2022, for want of a better phrase. On the sidelines, on Alpine's books, one eye on Will Alonso. How will Alonso do this year? Alonso saying he can see himself in Formula One for two or three more years. That was the news coming out of the Albert Park Paddock um, today. And why not? Because at some point in in FP2, halfway through, he was topping the timesheets, ended up fourth. Alpine's look quick. You talk about teams as well that will come under more scrutiny when they're not... Just in the midfield, or a little bit more anonymous. How do you think the Alpines are looking? Is it going to? Because you mentioned before on a previous podcast, just to interrupt myself, um, <laughs> that you think it might be more track specific this year in terms of some teams will do well at, at one track and not with these new cars. So, what's your take on the Alpines ending up fourth and sixth after FPT?
1: The track dependent thing. I think seems true for some cars. We've seen the extremes of McLaren, for example, that it's absolutely crystal clear that on slow speed corners and slow speed circuits, the McLaren is not as competitive as it is on the higher speed, kind of medium to higher speed venues. So, you know, that's why we've seen quite a big swing from McLaren. But I think with the Alpine, what we're seeing is, I think it performs in a kind of quite a broad window. So I think it just seems... Generally competitive in all conditions, whether it's low fuel, high fuel, high speed, low speed, just seems to be a good all round package. Um, I don't think we've seen the full potential of the Mercedes yet this weekend. I think they're still doing a lot of experiments today, just trying to get to the bottom of where they can run this car for maximum performance. We may see them make some progress. I think the Mercedes is much better on long runs than it is on single lap pace. That's been a weakness of the car. And equally, Haas have had another. Kind of low key Friday like they had in Saudi. Just don't seem to have done anything towards the back end of the field. So I think we'll know more on Haas tomorrow that if they make this big step up tomorrow and are back there in Q three and battling in that front of the midfield. That this may just be a they must maybe approaching race weekends in a, in a different way to other teams. Some teams like to go lower on fuel on Fridays. Some go heavy. Maybe Haas is just focusing all its all its runs on high fuel on the Fridays. And then does his his low fuel work on Saturdays. That's something we we need to see tomorrow. But Alpine has been consistently quick, and I know they've had some, you know, got some criticisms after testing when it looked fairly disappointing. Had quite a poor Barcelona test, Um, but they weren't running DRS, they were running with heavy fuel loads. Um, But through it all, the team's been quite confident that there is potential in that package, and it seems to be there. It seems to be front end of that midfield pack. Two great drivers in Fernando Alonso and Esteban Ocon. Um, and I think decent, decent haul of points. Um, but I think that we are seeing this little bit of a gap emerging, which is four or five temps between the the Ferrari Red Bulls and the chasing pack. And I think that's Mercedes still in that pack at the moment. I don't think they're clear of the Alpines and the, the Haas if it's performing. But I think Alpine are definitely consistently up there.
0: Two more points I want to just grab you on today. First
2: of all, you wrote an article today for motorsport.com and autosport.com titled, Hamilton, nothing we change on the Mercedes F1 car makes a difference. Now, you know, you've said for a while, it's not just the bouncing issue. George Russell says it's ninety-nine percent of their issues, but you know, they're never gonna tell us the whole story in those interviews after races and, and what have you. So he says, fix the fix the bouncing, the whole car comes good. We know it's a lot more than just that. It's it's a it's a package that isn't working at the moment. But how dire <laughs> loaded question. What's your impression after the first two races? Bahrain, flattered, of course, to see Hamilton on the podium at Albert Park. Are we going to see a, a, again a true reflection of Mercedes' pace? Do you think? What's your assessment?
1: It's a question of time. Um, I think what you had in Bahrain, you know, the teams had three days of testing to dial out the porpoising, to work out where they needed, where they could run the car in terms of, you know, ride height, suspension settings, you know, aero balance, all that sort of thing. There's a myriad of factors that are coming together to, to trigger this porpoising, and the, the teams that have got a better grip on it for example, Alpine, have from, you know, the Bahrain test, they were run experiments, understood exactly what triggered porpoising, what didn't trigger porpoising, where they could run the car. Um, they built a, I spoke to Pat Fry, their chief technical officer in Saudi, and he explained that they'd deliberately built a very stiff floor, took the took a weight, weight penalty from it, and the kind of the, the layout of the chassis itself gave it much more stiffness. There's, there's not much flexing. Um, which basically has given it a consistent platform at varying speeds. So the floor's not flexing, which is triggering a lot of the problems that some other teams have had, which is why these stays have appeared, basically, on other cars to try and keep the, the floors flat so that the downforce isn't increasing a lot as they, as the speed increases. Um, I think for Mercedes, they, they just don't have the answer yet as to as to what's needed. I think they're convinced that when they do get, do get the answer, they can unlock a lot of potential. Um, and if you look at their floor, for example, um, we've seen other teams, you know, hack away at the floor. There's cutouts, there's slots, there's things. All these are things that are releasing theoretical downforce, but it's allowing them to control this the, the porpoising. So they sacrifice some downforce, some performance, to overcome the porpoising to run the car in a better window. What Mercedes still think they can cure this without having to cut away the, the floor too much. They try to cut away the floor in Bahrain. Uh, grand prix and at the the test it didn't work so i think it's still chasing answers and it's still hard to do on a friday two hours of running on a friday and then you're into final practice and qualifying um and it's every track you're trying to relearn exactly what's needed for that that performance and it's, it's changes depending on what the top speed is where the corners are low speed or medium speed or high speed and it's not something you can doing a wind tunnel wind tunnels are limited to 180 kilometers an hour um that's your maximum wind speed this is a phenomenon that's triggered at 250 kilometers an hour so you can't actually physically stick someone in a wind tunnel and try and try and address this problem um it's only something you can actually encounter experience and try to work out how to get yourself out of it in real life at a racetrack
2: the days of testing long long gone but you know the days of of teams like Ferrari just doing tens of thousands of, of, of laps at Maranello, uh, just give that real-life data, which you couldn't get. Admittedly, you know, technology's moved on with CFD, et cetera, now, but there's, uh, there's definitely a need at uh, Mercedes to uh, get some more real-world data. Hey, final talking point from you. I want to get your take on this. Sebastian Vettel, as of recording this, under investigation for riding a moped on the track. I understand FIA uh, wants... Safety. They want drivers uh, and marshals and an everyone working event to be safe. Look, like it's hardly Mansell giving Senna a, a side pod ride in 1991 at Silverstone, is it? I mean, it's, like, it's not that dangerous to see Vettel on a scooter taking himself back to the pits when the, when the session had finished, but why
1: is he in trouble? There's a strict wording of the, the FY regulations that say drivers aren't allowed um, on track without permission from marshals, I think it's five minutes after the session's finished. So Seb Vettel explains, you know, today his car had stopped in FP1. Um, They tried to get it going or moving in. It wasn't possible. This moped appeared. Um, Seb was off the lift. But I don't think he likes being a bit of a backseat passenger. So he said, can I ride it myself? And I said, yeah, yeah, sure, go for it. Um, Now, whether whether that meant, yeah, go for it and ride around on track or, yeah, go for it, make your way back around the um, access roads or not, we don't know. So I think both Seb and the, the marshal involved were someone to see the stewards. <laughs>
2: oh,
1: no, um, I mean, it is, a, it is a safety thing. And I think, you know, on one side, you can see it is important that, you know, drivers aren't don't just run onto a track because you can't tell what's happening f- five minutes after the session. A session could finish, it could be appear to be over and a car's gone off somewhere and the medical car's running around. So there are, there are genuine grounds for this. But uh, hopefully there's some a sensible outcome for the stewards where common sense uh, comes to the fore. But it's definitely give us, uh, given us a... Uh, some iconic images. Seb has this habit, doesn't he, of just doing something on every Grand Prix weekend that becomes a meme. So uh, he's done it again. That's the thing, right? It's it's an image. It's, 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 it's
2: one of the most viewed images of the weekend so far, with him with his helmet half off, so that he's been criticised for having his helmet resting on his head, and at times waving to the crowd with both hands, and yet... You know, in the same sentence, will people will say, oh, these are the, the best drivers on the planet, and, and then, you know, be criticized for riding a scooter with his hands off the handlebars, you know, like every 12-year-old kid does. So, I don't know, well, yeah, clearly safety is priority, but hey, come on, uh, let Seb ride his scooter around. And it, you know, gave a bit of a a wave to the fans as well. So let's hope that uh, nobody gets in trouble over that. A sensible outcome is uh, (laughs) is, is required. John, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the Friday podcast today. Uh, You're off to uh, Italy. Uh, and then and Ferrari saying that they've got some engine upgrades coming. That like, just sounds ominous, but it's so good to have. Well, I'd say uh, we're impartial, obviously, but for the uh, the organisers and for the fans, so good to have Ferrari back at uh, at the sharp end as well.
1: One of the big fears going into this season was that one team would get a massive kind of head start or get a massive leap on everybody else, and would just end up with you know a run of one twos for that team, unchallenged, which would then kind of take the shine off the. Off the season, so um, I think it's great that the Ferrari v Red Bull fight is so tightly poised at the moment. You know, it will be about development, um, and I think you know both Ferrari and Red Bull will be rolling out the the upgrades coming. You know, from from Imola onwards, um, they've been quite light so far in terms of upgrades. But I think it's due to the flyaway nature and the impact of the cost cap, because everyone's trying to play this tactical game of not spending all their cash too soon. I think it's good for the that Ferrari is up there. It's, you know, still, you know, an iconic team. It's still an important team. A lot of fans around the world. Um, and I think, you know, hopefully Mercedes can get their act together, can get into that fight because, you know, a three way fight involving, you know, Leclerc, Verstappen, Hamilton, Russell, Sainz, Perez, um, all three of them, all six drivers and three teams going at it would be absolutely sensational. Um, for the second half of this season. Absolutely. All right, thank you, John. Make sure
2: uh, that you check in and read what John's writing over the weekend at autosport.com and motorsport.com. You can follow John at Noble F one on Twitter to see what he thinks about things over the F1 weekend. Make sure you uh, subscribe to the podcast if you're listening to this and you haven't hit subscribe in your podcast app yet. Make sure you do. If you can leave us a little review anytime on Apple, iTunes, on your uh, your iPhone, your iPad or iTunes, uh, a little star rating or a few words always helps us out spread the word thank you for listening and tomorrow it'll be alex and luke from the circuit after qualifying we'll see you then
1: June's Journey is a Roaring Twenties murder mystery hidden object game. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android or iOS devices and on PC through Facebook games.
0: Sports Social Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
2: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to...
0: Has
1: anyone seen the bride and groom?
0: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky
1: in the limo and we lost track of time.